0: Chapter 20, verse 1. Now a wicked man, or a son of Belial, as we saw earlier in the book, named Sheba, son of Burkari, a Benjamite, happened to be there. He blew a trumpet and said, We have no share in David. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man go home, O Israel. So all the men of Israel deserted David and followed Sheba, son of Burkari. But the men of Judah stuck by their king all the way from the Jordan River to the Jerusalem. So they're all arguing over who gets to bring David in. And then all of a sudden they hear news that a new political candidate from the opposite political party is saying, I'll run for president, so to speak. And they're like, yay, and they run. And now we're right back where we started, civil war. Because David's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. And we're entering into a second civil war. And the idea here is, he's a Benjamite. And so there's a loyalty here with the tribes of the north. But the other idea is, Once David has allowed his son to rebel and never punished him, never dealt with it, let him go for years without dealing with it, his son flaunted his rebellion in front of the entire nation, won their hearts, and David still did nothing about it. He successfully rebelled, gained a lot of traction in his rebellion. Now what that has taught the entire nation is anybody can rebel. And in some sense, you're like, okay, God, that's harsh. You're going to pronounce the execution of somebody, even if it's David's own son? Like, you're going to make the father punish his son for that sins? Yeah, because this is exactly why. The minute that men and women of God in leadership tolerate sins and allow them to go and go and go, what it teaches everybody else is that they can sin too. And not be punished. And the law is flexible. And when that begins to happen, then everybody begins to follow their own hearts. And there is no sense of really how can you justly punish one person or another. And then you end up in a rebellious, chaotic society. And that's kind of what we're going into right now in America. When you don't consistently obey the law of God, then you end up with chaos and downfall. And it is harsh. But what God is interested in is the community of God's people. And he will not tolerate one person and their total high-handed sin and evil rebellion to live when that means destroying the entire community. David doesn't get that. Joab doesn't get that. But we're going to be introduced to a woman who gets it. And that's going to be the contrast. So Sheba rebels. Verse 3, Then David went to the palace in Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines. He hadn't even made it to the palace when Sheba decides to rebel. He took the ten concubines and placed them under confinement. Though he provided for their needs, he did not have sexual relations with them, and they remained in confinement until the day that they died, living out the rest of their lives as widows. So David takes his 10 concubines his son slept with and isolates them, totally isolates them, and refuses to go see them ever again. That's harsh, but that's politics because he's got to separate himself from what his son has done to them, and he might possibly be trying to show the North that he's downsizing himself, but that's harsh. But that shouldn't surprise you. David is notorious for taking women that he likes, but also tossing them aside when they no longer serve a purpose anymore. That's the kind of person he is. None of this is positive. Verse 4, Then the king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together for me in three days, and you be present here with them too. So Amasa went out to call Judah together, but in doing so, he took longer than the time that the king had allotted him. So David gave him three days, Amasa, the previous general of Absalom, to gather the army of Judah so they can fight the north again. So Amasa is now going to fight the very people that he was leading. Now the question is, why is Amasa taking so long? Is he taking long because that's life, and sometimes when the guy gives you three days, the reality is life. Sometimes you need more than three days because gathering this all together is not as easy as what it looks. Is it taking him a long time because he's that lazy little kid who just drags his feet everywhere? Or is he taking too long because he's actually going to join the north and turn on David now that the north has gained power again? We have no idea. The narrator never tells you, and we will never, ever know. Verse 6, Then David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, son of Bacri, will cause greater disaster for us than, than Absalom did. Take your Lord's servant and pursue him. Otherwise, he will secure fortified cities for himself and get away from us. So he sends Abishai directly against Sheba. So he takes Abishai, you and your soldier. You start attacking Sheba because Amasa is taking longer, and hopefully Amasa with the army of Judah will come up behind you and give you reinforcements. So Joab's men, accompanied by the Karathites and the Pelathites, and all the warriors, left Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, Son of Akrahi. When they were near the big rock that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to them. Now Job was dressed in military attire and had a dagger in his sheath belted to his waist. When he advanced, it fell out, as in he's dropping it into his hands. Not he's clumsy and it fell on the floor. Job said to Amasa, How are you, my brother? And with his right hand, Job took a hold of Amasa's beard as if to greet him with a kiss. And Amasa did not protect himself from the knife in Job's other hand. And Job stabbed him in the Abnon, causing Amasa's intestines to spill out on the ground. And there was no need to stab him again. The first blow was fatal. Then Job and his brother Abishai pursued Sheba son of cry. That's exactly how he killed Abner. Practically word for word. When he killed Abner, it said he went up to Abner to greet him, grabbed a hold of the beard as if he was going to kiss him. He dropped the knife into his hand. He stabbed him in the gut, even spilling his intestines. There was no need to stab him a second time. He fell dead right there. The exact words. The narrator is associating both of those. Abner was a man who was willing to join David, and Job didn't like that and killed him. Amasa was a man willing to join David, and Job didn't like him and killed him. David went passive aggressive in removing Job from power and putting Amasa in. And Job's going to go passive aggressive. A lot more aggressive on Amasa, but passive with David by not letting him know. Job kills him. This is definite guilty of murder. Notice how it's harder and harder to rationalize each one. The first one was Abner. He's like, well, he was literally fighting against David. And he kind of had an army with him. He was in the city limits with an army. That could be suspicious. Then we get to the second one, and it's Absalom. Yeah, he rebelled against David, but now he's completely vulnerable with no army. And now we've got Amasa who's literally changed sides and is hanging out with Joab as a fellow general, and he's just killing blood, um cold blood without a battle even start yet. Each one has gotten harder and harder to justify. Because Job is a violent man, and this one is only totally because Job's looking at Job's looking out for himself. Maybe he doesn't trust Amasa, and politically he can argue he took way too long. That's suspicious. He used to be on the other side. But this one's blatantly obvious. I do not get demoted. What is David gonna do about it? Nothing. Nothing. Not until Solomon comes. This is not healthy. I think you're beginning to realize as you read this, this is really, really dysfunctional. This is the chosen people of God with the chosen king of God. Who is a man after God's own heart? And they're supposed to be the image of God as a shining example of righteousness and holiness and a blessing to the entire world. And they're at each other's throats. This is what the people of God have become. It is going to get way worse when we get to the book of Kings. Verse 11. One of Joab's soldiers who stood over Masa said, Whoever is for Joab and whoever is for David, follow Joab. So one of the soldiers say, Yay, Joab! We're all back again. And the army joins Joab. And meanwhile, Masa was squirming in his own blood in the middle of the path. And this man had noticed that all the soldiers stopped. That image right there just says this is jacked up. Having noticed that everyone who came across Amasa stopped the man, pulled him away from the path and into the field and threw a garment over him. Once he had removed Amasa from the path, everyone followed Job to pursue Sheba son of Bukri. Now this body is in our way of marching against Sheba. So they just kind of drag him off into the road so they can get their horses and chariots through. And they're like, now we can go to battle. That's just how they view him. And remember too, Job is related to this guy. This isn't just some random guy from the other side either. This is Joab's cousin. And this is the way that he's dealing with him. Verse 14, Sheba traveled through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of Beth-Makkah and all the Barite region. And when they had assembled they too joined him. So Joab's men came and laid siege against them, in Abel of Beth and they prepared a siege ramp outside the city, which stood against its outer rampart, as all of Joab's soldiers were trying to break through the wall so that it will collapse. A wise woman called out from the city, Listen up, listen up, tell Joab, come near so that I may speak to you. So Sheba flees to Beth Ma'aka. He goes in the city, and he hides. Meanwhile, Joab's army is coming. The city sees this giant army coming at them. Now remember, they know that this is the army of Judah. Just a couple of days ago, they were in a civil war. So they're thinking, holy crap, the civil war is not over with. So they lock their city gates and they get ready for a siege. And Joab begins to put the city under siege to get to Sheba. Now under siege means starving them all out to death and willing to break through the walls and kill everybody. But a wise woman saw this happen, looked over the wall, and called for Joab. Verse 17. When he approached her, the woman asked, Are you Joab? He replied, I am. She said to him, Listen to the words of your servant. He said, Go ahead, I am listening. She said, In the past they would always say, Let them inquire in Abel. And that is how they settled things. I represent the peaceful and the faithful in Israel. You are attempting to destroy an important city in Israel. Why should you swallow Yahweh's inheritance? The woman's response is, Look, we have been known for generations for being a peaceful, righteous city. Knowing that for generations, we have been known as a wise people that people come to us to seek advice on how to run their lives. Why are you trying to destroy that kind of a city. Why are you destroying God's city? The implication is you're an enemy of God. You're the general of David's army, the image of God, and you're attacking God's inheritance. Why, Joab? Verse 20, Joab answered, Get serious. I don't want to swallow up and destroy everything anything or destroy anything that is not the way things are there is a man from the hill country of Ephraim named Sheba son of Bacri he has rebelled against the king David give me just this one man and I will leave the city the woman said to Job this very minute his head will be thrown over the wall to you now Job says I don't want to kill this entire city just to get to one man and as a reader you're saying yeah you do you may not want to but you're willing to because the only reason that you're stopping right now is because of her. If she had not looked over the city wall, you would have just kept attacking. But if you really didn't want to destroy this entire city to get one man, then why didn't you call a messenger into the city? Why didn't you call him out and say you're harboring a fugitive? Are you with him? Well, if you're not with him, then send him out. Yet he doesn't do that, he just attacks. And then the minute the woman presents the logical argument, the wise argument, the biblical, godly argument, all of a sudden he's backpedaling. And he doesn't want to be seen as the anti-the people of God. And what you realize is he's a total hypocrite and a liar. So she says, I'll throw his head out to you. The woman went to all the people... With her advice, and they cut off Sheba's head and threw it out to Joab. And Joab blew the trumpet, and his men dispersed from the city, each going to his own home. And Joab returned to the king in Jerusalem. This story is totally like the story of Abimelech, Gideon's son. Now remember, Abimelech was Gideon's son, and he decided he was going to make himself king over the nation, and he just began to attack the cities of God. And he was attacking just because he wanted power. And in that moment, a woman, an unnamed woman, drops a millstone off the wall and crushes his head and brings it into the rebellion, protecting these innocent, godly cities of God. Probably she's unnamed because God is making the point that he can use anyone. Everything is about context. Sometimes when he leaves people unnamed, he's showing you that he's judging them, condemning them. Sometimes he leaves them unnamed because he's showing you that the unnamed culturally insignificant, not really like the everyday normal person kind of a person who's really significant in God's kingdom, but most people in the kingdom aren't going to know about them. God can even use them. He gives them anything. And what you're seeing here is this is a huge contrast to David because what this woman is showing is she is not willing to sacrifice the entire nation for the sake of one rebellious person. Rebellion is punishable by death according to the law. There's an entire city that has witnessed Sheba's rebellion. And if it means killing one man who deserves to die according to the law to protect the entire city and the entire nation, then she's willing to do it. Yet David is unwilling to punish and deal with an even more rebellious person, Absalom, because the value of that person is more valuable than the safety and the significance of the city and the entire nation. This woman is showing herself to be far wiser, far more willing to do the will of God than David. By leaving her unnamed, the author is doing two things. One, it's immediately taking you back to Abimelech. What the narrator is doing is saying that Absalom is just like Abimelech, an ungodly man, shaking his fist at God, willing to destroy the people of God for his own power, and deserves death according to the law. Absalom is just like that. Sheba is just like that. And the unnamed woman in the book of Judges was willing to do and punish, where Gideon was not, and the leaders of Shechem were not. Now this woman is willing to deal with Sheba, when David was not willing to deal with Absalom. And she's going to deal with Sheba in a more righteous biblical way to spare the city than Job is willing to deal with Sheba, who's willing to kill everybody just to get to one man. And the fact that she's unnamed and a woman makes the point of really humiliating Joab and David. This isn't a celebrity. This isn't a politically powerful person. This is just an everyday normal person, run-of-the-mill, Jimmy-Joe-Jew down the street, and they're willing to do what the representative of God is not willing to do. And not only that, it's taking you back to Judges, where God is showing that when the men of God fail to represent God and do the right thing, God will use the women, and God will use anybody. Now, remember, this is in the context of that culture. You know, hopefully by now, in Bibles, that God values women very highly by the fact that he made Adam and Eve both king and queen over creation. And he made them partners and co-heirs. And the fact that the, the law gave women mo- way more rights and way more value than any other culture in the history of mankind ever has. And the reason that women have any value any rights in America today is because it's built on the biblical foundation of the law, whether the people today realize it or not. But in that culture, they don't view women as highly and as significant. By doing this, he's not demeaning the woman and saying even a woman can do this in the way that he's thinking. What he's saying is that even a woman can do this in the way that they're thinking. And that he'll go to the person that the culture thinks, well, there's no way they can pull that off because they're not a man. And he will use them to accomplish the thing that all the men are failing to do. All this is just showing you that this is so jacked up where David and Job have become, what they have become. You can see here in this story that Sheba's rebellion gains no traction whatsoever And he is so quickly put down that it doesn't even feel like a rebellion. And it's very pathetic compared to Absalom's rebellion. So this makes another point in that once again we see David playing favorites. Where with Absalom, he allowed Absalom's rebellion to gain traction over multiple years. He did not deal with it because it was his son. And he couldn't deal justly with his son because he favored him. And eventually, that rebellion grew into a full blown civil war. Into a full blown civil war that drove David out of the palace, tore the nation apart, and reaped multiple consequences. And even when that's all happening, he doesn't want to deal justly with his son. And he's not willing to really punish him and kill him because David plays favorites. Yet when Sheba comes along, Sheba is just some guy in the kingdom. He's not part of David's family. David's not playing favorites with him. David may not even know who he was before this happened, and he has no problem smashing him. He knows has no problem. He never allows it to gain traction. It's dealt with incredibly quickly, and he allows Joab and Amasa and all of them to be unleashed on him, and it becomes no rebellion at all. Again, the narrator is making the point that David's playing favorites. And he deals with one person, Absalom, in one way, and another person, Sheba, in a different way because he plays favorites. Verse 23, Now Job was the general in command of all the army of Israel. Benaiah the son of Jehoiada was over the Carthites and the Pelphites, and Adoram was the supervisor of the work crews, and Jehoshaphat son of Ahalod, was the secretary, and Shiva was the scribe, and Zadok of Abithar, and the priest, and Ira the jar, was David's personal priest. We have seen a listing of David's officials in Second Samuel chapter eight. This is the second time that the narrator has listed the officials of David's cabinet. In a lot of ways, it's very similar. He points out Zadok, he points out Benaiah, he points out Joab. But there are two points that the narrator is making with the second listing. The first point is a similarity, a comparison. And the comparison is Joab is still the commander of David's army. And the first list where David, Joab, only had one innocent killing under his belt. He was the general. Now he's got three innocent killings and probably a whole lot more that's just not recorded. Under his belt, and Job is still the commander of David's army. David is employing as the head of his army someone who should be punished according to the law. That's the first point the narrator is making, is a similarity. The second point is a contrast, a difference between the first and the second lists. And the contrast is in the first list, there was no foreman of the work servants. Now there is. So now we see there is a supervisor of all the work crews, the forced labor. And what we find out now is towards the end of David's life, he has forced labor in Israel. And that is not biblical in any kind of a way, which means he's still building his machine. And he's building his power base. This isn't just a negative note against David that he's becoming power hungry, so to speak, and a political machine that he's creating and an empire that he's creating, but it's also a negative foreshadowing because when his son Solomon comes along, Solomon's going to run the kingdom just like his father did. And 1 Kings is going to begin in the second chapter with David giving Solomon some really bad advice and Solomon's going to seize it and go for it. In the first chapter, he's going to act a lot like his dad and do some really bad, unwise things. In the second chapter, he's going to take the bad advice of his father and he's going to go with it and do it. And one of the things that Solomon's going to do is he's going to oppress the people. But Solomon is going to be Texas. He's going to do everything bigger and better into a far greater extreme. Not only is he going to take what his his father David did bad, but he's going to push it to an extreme and do it even more. And that this is the beginning of the forced labor that's going to become so bad under Solomon that it's going to cause the kingdom split. And one of the things the narrator is telling you here is the kingdom split is already happening. And it's all the fault of David. And when we get to King Solomon and God says, I'm going to allow the kingdom split. It's less of God saying, I'm going to make the kingdom split because of your sins. It's more of God saying, I'm going to allow it to happen because of your sins. But this is all happening because you sinned and didn't follow the law. Just like David, your family falling apart is because you've sinned and you're not following the law. Both with Uriah and Bathsheba and with the way that you've been a father to your kids. The kingdom's going to split because you haven't been the godly king over Israel. You've been a political politician. And now you're forcing labor. All this is bad. That is the end to that division. And that brings an end to all the negative stuff of David's reign. With Second Samuel, we have seen two major divisions so far. The first division was all the good things about David: his triumphs as king, the fact that he's making covenant with Mephibosheth, that God makes a covenant with him, in the Davidic covenant in Second Samuel seven. That David is driving all the enemies back like he should. That he, he learns his lesson with the Ark of the Covenant and treats it with great holiness and reverence. All that stuff is good. Then we see all of the negative, all of the bad things that we've all gone through—really negative and depressing. And the reality is you have to put both of these side by side. And this is what makes David an interesting man is because he's not portrayed as a totally good person or a totally bad person. In this story, there are no white hat and black hat cowboys. Well, there are, I guess, some black hat cowboys. But the main character is neither a white hat or a black hat. He's a gray hat. And all this is mixed together. And despite all this, God says, this is a man after God's own heart. And what it shows you is, it's complicated. In the garden, it was so simple. There was no sin. Adam and Eve were righteous. They were naked and they felt no shame. And they walked with God and they were his representatives. But what the Bible is now really showing, it's kind of been showing you this, but this story really emphasizes it. Sin muddies the waters big time because what we're being seen here is we're still the image of God. God makes that very clear. And the garden is really tempted after the fall when they get kicked out to think that the image is completely God, gone. And that there is no more image of God anymore. But then you get to Genesis chapter 9 or Genesis chapter 5 and it tells you that Seth the son of Adam is in the image of God. And then you get to chapter 9 of the, the, the Noahic Covenant. God says, don't kill any, murder any humans, for they are in the image of God. And then you get to Psalm chapter 8. And David writes Psalm 8. And in this context, really think about this. David says, who is man, humans, that you would even consider us? You would see us slightly lower than the sons of God. In this context of this life, you can see why David would say something like that. I'm a horrible scumbag. Look at all the things that I've done throughout my life. I've murdered, I've raped, I've I've ignored rebellions and all this kind of stuff, and yet you still bless me and still honor me and somehow call me a man after God's own heart. Who am I and all of God's creation wonders that you would consider me just slightly lower than the sons of God? That's what the Bible is making the point. You're still the child of God. You're still the image of God. He still loves you. He's willing to go to hell and back, so to speak, on the cross for you. That even us in our evilness and despicableness can still desire God. Even in our addictions, we can still desire God. Even our dysfunctionality, we can still desire God and pursue Him. But in another sense, we are horrible scumbags. (laughs) they are so selfish. And even when we're being godly, we're still being selfish. Even when we're trying our darndest to surrender ourselves to God and do the right thing, we're still screwing it up. There is no easy picture here. It is so hard to go into the lives of people and just condemn them. It's so hard to go into the lives of people and just rationalize and excuse it. Everything this gets really muddied. how many have ever seen stranger things stranger things is this tv show on netflix it's really well done and i'm going to tell you this scene because i think it's a powerful powerful image there's this guy he's this blonde hair incredibly good looking strong bodybuilding kind of well, toned athletic guy in the tv show it's all high school stuff okay so just think totally stereotypes He's got the worst blonde hair mullet you've ever seen, but somehow he's like totally popular. The girls love him. There's nothing he can't do well except for academics and it's a good social behavior. It's totally stereotypes, right? Jock. And he is the most abusive person. Like he threatens to kill his da, his sister, who's not like sister by marriage, stepsister. He, he's threatened to kill his stepsister. He even grabs her by the throat one time and chokes her. He goes to up little other little kids and threatens to kill them in a racist kind of a way. He beats on people. He dummy He's just totally arrogant and prideful. And I mean, the worst possible abusive jock who cares about no one except just getting what he wants from girls and all that kind of, you could possibly imagine. And they, they set him up episode after episode after episode and you just hate him. I mean, they do a really good job of bringing that hatred out. You just want him to die or something bad to happen. You just want it, right? And there's this one scene where he's at home bodybuilding, looking at himself in the mirror while he's smoking cigarettes and ACDCs playing on because it's in the 80s. And like every bad stereotypical image. And he's just flexing on that kind of stuff. And he's supposed to watch his stepsister. His dad told him to do that. And she's kind of run away to get away from him and go off with her friends. Totally innocent what she's doing. But he didn't look out for her. So the father comes home, his biological father. And the the mother who the father's remarried, not his mother, his stepmother, they come home. And she's freaking out because this is her biological daughter. And she's gone. And the father goes... Totally abusive. In a military kind of way, he grabs his son by the throat and he slams him up against the wall and begins to choke him. And he begins to yell at him. He says, You get one job, one job only. I'm gonna kill you, I'm gonna send you to military school, da-da-da. And just totally begins to abuse him in a horrible way. And all that pride and all that arrogance and all that power floods out of that kid. And as he's hanging off the ground, and he's a tall kid, and his feet aren't touching the ground, and he's hanging by his throat. And all of that pride and everything goes out. He is so scared out of his mind. And tears begin to go down his eyes. And in one swift blow, the director has taken all your anger out of you. And you all of a sudden are feeling very sympathetic towards this kid. And all of a sudden, everything that he's ever done, all of a sudden makes sense. Now, it doesn't mean that you don't want consequences for him anymore. It doesn't mean that you want him to get away scot-free. But all of a sudden, you're like... Now I understand. Poor kid. How could he have turned out any other way than that? Welcome to humanity. This is what this book is trying to do with you. In some ways, God is putting this mirror in front of you and saying, you are that horrible scumbag. You are the sinner. You deserve all these consequences. But in another sense, then he turns around and calls these people a man and woman after God's own heart. And you're like, What? And it's so easy for us to go into other people's lives and condemn them and judge them for their adultery, for their murder, for their abuse, for all that kind of stuff. But if you ever do family backgrounds on these people and look at where they came from and what their history was, you begin to realize, oh my gosh. It doesn't mean we should excuse them from consequences. It doesn't mean there shouldn't be tough love. But all of a sudden you realize, oh my gosh, with that kind of a family or that kind of a traumatic experience that happened to you on that street corner or that kind of neighborhood, or I can't imagine turning out any differently. And all of a sudden your heart goes out for them. Or sometimes you get so close to people it's so easy for you to excuse it and overlook it. Yeah, no. Nah, nah, nah. But at the same time, they're really bad. And what the Bible presents to you is humanity. And this is what God is saying. I love you. And all of your horrible darkness, David, that you deserve to die umpteen times over under the law. And Joab and all that kind of stuff. God is also going to present a man of God's own heart. And what he's saying is that sin just muddies the water. And nothing becomes black and white anymore. Nothing becomes easy anymore. And the only hope that we ever have to see things correctly for the way that they should be through God's eyes is through the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. And my only hope as I look at this person that I attempted to play favorites with or I'm tempted to judge and condemn and scarlet letter them is to get on my knees and say, God, guide me in the way that I see them and the way that I deal with them. And take me to the Word of God that I need to read to help guide me in this area. Because all in the end, we don't have the same eyes that God does for these things. And that's who David is. So now that we've dealt with the filth of David, the narrator is going to go into a new section where it's going to put David in a positive light again. And that's the third section of 2 Samuel. Now we're going to see all the great things about David. Because the narrator wants to come back and say, Yeah, that scumbag. That guy was a horrible passive father. That guy who never disciplined his kids. That guy who played the game of politics. That guy who was willing to over- roll over his own good friend Mephibosheth. That, that guy, that guy, that guy, that guy who won't deal with Joab. That man is a God after man after God's own heart. And you look at the behavior and you're ready to condemn him and judge him and toss him to the side. But I look at the heart and I see. A broken man who has tears in his eyes, who ultimately in the end is falling on the ground of God and begging for mercy from Yahweh. And that's what the narrator is going now. We've seen the abusive, dysfunctional David that you want to hate. And now we're going to see the David with two psalms. The David who cries. The David who mourns. The David who's broken and he cannot stop himself or help himself. And all he has is God. And he's begging out for mercy and the grace of God and say, Just help me. Because that's the only way I'm going to get through this. And you need to remember that. You need to remember that as we go through this. And you need to remember that as we look at people's lives. And then when we get to the prophets, God is going to perfectly show justice and mercy. Where he will not excuse the sin of Israel. And he will punish them harshly. But at the same time, he shows so much mercy, and he will love them, redeem them, and restore them, and start lacing all the beginnings of the prophecy of a Messiah who's going to die for those people. And that's the way we need to see people. But we can only do that with God. Does this make sense? Life is complicated. Complicated. And only with the Holy Spirit do we have a hope to see it for what it really is. And this is why we can't go to the world. We can't go anywhere else than in here. Now, I'm not saying the world doesn't have anything to offer, but we must filter all that stuff through the Word of God and the Holy Spirit as well.